It was about uh, about a month ago that uh, Jeff Martins and I were together in Houston at a conference. We were we were staying at a hotel that was, I think, on the GPS, about four miles away from the church where the conference was being had. The GPS said it was about an eleven minute drive. I I don't think in the weekend that we were there we ever made it to the conference or back uh, in under 20 minutes, I, I think, was pretty standard. But the worst morning was the, the, the last morning of the conference. We had gotten in the car and we, we got out of the, the parking garage with the GPS on and uh, the GPS, we had gone a couple of streets, you know, down the road and the GPS said, you know, turn right here down the main thoroughfare that was to take us to the church. It was a Saturday morning and we turned right and and as we turned, we found ourselves confronted with a row of traffic cones and a police officer blocking traffic. And he, they'd kind of closed off the road for this charity walk that appeared to be heading on by. And Jeff and I were like, ah, oh, nuts. Okay, guess we're not going this way. So we kind of circled around the block and we started down the same road that we had just been on. And, and we passed the street that it went two more blocks, and the GPS said, okay, we'll turn here. So we turned there and found ourselves confronted with another row of pylons and then more charity walkers. And we were like, ah, oh, bad decision. So it was all one-way streets, so we went all the way back, you know, around the block. And we, we kept going further and looking down, pylons, pylons, pylons. Finally, uh, I said, I don't think we're going this way. And so I clicked that magical button on the GPS that says, calculate alternative. And the GPS said, oh, you don't want to go that way. Well, I have a backup plan. Go down to the end of the street, turn left, cross the highway, go under the overpass, and you're on your way. And so that's exactly what we did. We turned left over the highway, through the underpass, came around the corner, boom, barricade, flat up barricade, road closed. No, like, local traffic only, or, you know, I think I can sneak through. No, no, no. There was, like, flat up barricade, you're not going this way, road closed. We're like, stop for a second. <laughs> okay, where do we go now? Well, calculate alternative. We hadn't noticed right away, but the, there was a, a kind of a little side street right at that point. Actually, the, a, a van came from behind us and took that little fork in the road. And so the GPS told us to go the same way. So we followed the van. It turned out to be a driveway f- to an abandoned warehouse. And the van pulled around the back and uh, Jeff and I were convinced we were going to die but the GPS said it was okay, so we, we pulled around the warehouse, and, and at the exit, it said, turn right here. And so we turned right, bam, barricade, road closed. You're not going this way. We're like, where are we going to go? So I said, okay, well, I'll turn the car around again. So we turned the car, and we started going the other way, and I hit calculate alternative. The GPS said, no problem. You just have to go about 300 feet that way and turn left. So we, we got there, we started to turn left, but it was kind of like this turning left into this little subdivision. It didn't really feel like where the church was that we were looking for. So we, but we turned left because the GPS said, right, go left. So we turned left, and it said in two streets, turn left. And so we turned left again down this even narrower street. And then it says, at the end of the road, turn right. And we get to the end of the road, not a word of a lie, a dead end. Just a flat up dead end. There's trees on every side of us. There literally is no more pavement. And the GPS is saying, turn right here. And we're like, seriously, where where are we going to turn right here? 
And we kind of look, and, and in the woods, because like, there's trees there, right? Like there's woods. In the woods, there's this little pathway, like a path through the forest. And Jeff gets out of the car, and he's walking through the mud, which is like this deep. He's walking through the mud, and he peeks down this path, because it looks like tire tracks. It looks like somebody had driven there once before. And he's kind of peeking down there, trying to see whether we could actually drive all the way through the woods and come out the other side and he comes back to the car and he's got mud on his sandals and he's like, you, he says, honestly, dude, he said, I don't think we can, we, you can't go that way. He said, the mud is so deep and there's like branches across the, it, it's just like, I don't, I don't think we can do this. And I said, okay, well, calculate alternative. And we sat in the car for two minutes while the GPS thought about what to do next. It literally, it analyzed 256,000 roads and this is the message I got back. There is no route. There is no route. You're a GPS. And you're telling me I can't get there from here. We were going bananas. Like, what do you do then? The GPS, is, I don't know. I, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. You, you turned down my last option. And I said to Jeff, I didn't know what we're going to do. And so I turned the car around again. And before I could even press calculating alternative, all of, the, all of a sudden the GPS said, oh, well, just turn left on this street. It's right there. It was, like, it was like the GPS is just, saying, oh, I didn't realize you were open to turning around. I thought you wanted to go through the woods. There's no way to get there through the woods. But if you wanted to turn around, yeah, you could totally go there, and it's just right around the corner. And I, I swear I wanted to punch the GPS in the face. Like, I was so mad because here's this thing, this device that is supposed to be making it easy for me to navigate a foreign city, to travel along the, the path to find the place where I'm supposed to go. It's supposed to be helping me, and instead it's making my life incredibly difficult. It's supposed to be for me, and it feels like it's working against me, which is what this whole series has been about. Those times and places and spaces that we get into in our own lives with God where in all sincerity and in all genuineness, we, we definitively, we, we just genuinely want to live a life that is for God and yet we find ourselves in really clear ways according to what we've been looking at with hard attitudes that are aligned against the purposes of God for us. That's what we've been exploring. And there's one more story in Matthew chapter 12 that we're going to pick up today, starting in verse 46. It says this, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told them, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Uh, thank you, Captain Obvious, for your incredible helpfulness. You have to, you have to picture, here's Jesus He's preaching to a packed house, literally, literally. Uh, he's in a house, and he's speaking, and the place is just filled to the gills, right? With friends and disciples, with curious onlookers and sincere seekers, with skeptics and cynics, and everybody's just kind of gathered around him, and they're pressing in, and they're listening to him teach, and he's so engaged with the crowd that he doesn't even realize that his mother and his brothers have shown up. They, they can't even make it into the house. The place is so full. They're kind of loitering around outside just waiting for a break in the action for the opportunity to talk to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even notice because he's so surrounded by people, so engaged until finally somebody elbows him and says, by the way, your, your family's like outside waiting to talk to you. I know the, the tension, that, uh, what that feels like in a really small way, not that I'm Jesus, but 
completely, but um, you know, after the service on Sundays, there'll be times where I stand down at the front and uh, there's a little scrum of people that develops. And so we're having a conversation. There's a couple standing here waiting and then there's a few people here and they're kind of listening to the conversation. It seems like they're kind of waiting to talk and then some folks in behind and then, and then every once in a while in behind them, I can see Krista and my four little princesses and they're, they're just kind of standing there waiting waiting for a van key or the girls want to give me a hug or something. And, and I'm in this space where I'm, I'm engaged in a conversation. I know my wife, I know my family is standing there waiting for me and I want to respect the conversation, but I want to honor my wife and I'm, I'm totally stuck in this tension between what I'm doing and my family who's waiting. And, and I don't often know how to handle that situation, how to do that well. Uh, but I don't think I've ever responded the way that Jesus has. Verse 48, it says he replied to him, Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that's my brother and sister and mother. Guy says, your family's waiting, you know. And Jesus is like, family? What family? It's not like he's got amnesia, right? What family? See these guys right here? That's all the family I need, bro. Like, could you, imagine if, could you imagine if that was the answer I gave? So I'm standing there, there's a little scrum of people, and Krista and the girls are standing behind, and somebody says, hey, buddy, your wife is, you know, your wife and kids are standing right there. And I look over and I say, wife? What wife? The only wife I have is the church, man. Kids? <laughs> the only kids I care about are the people in this congregation. That's, that's the only family I care about. Well, first of all, besides thinking that I'm, an incredibly arrogant jerk, <laughs> you'd probably pull me aside and maybe urge a little reprioritizing of my, of my thinking, maybe even encourage me along to some marriage counseling. If the elders heard about it, maybe I'd get pulled aside and we'd have a little conversation about uh, taking a break until I can get my perspective back the way it ought to be. I mean, it would just be intolerable. unthinkable for me to respond that way. And it's exactly as radical and as unthinkable as as that's how they would have heard Jesus' response. What do you mean family? What do you mean your family's outside? In the ancient world, family was everything. In a world without a fire department or a police department or a hospital, in a world without real access to doctors and healthcare, in a world where you don't apply for a job or move across the country for work, but you apprentice under your dad and you work in the family business or you you work with your mom inside the home managing the slaves and so on, running the house side of things. In, In a world where your family was literally the only thing that you had, your family was the only thing that you had. And you treat it with the deference and respect. You treat your family as the most precious resource on the planet. And here's Jesus saying, family, what family? These dudes right here who are, who are journeying with me through living the purposes of God together in community, that's the only family I need. It's just this incredible, shocking response. And I genuinely don't think Jesus was being disrespectful of his mom or his brothers. He was a Jew and he was raised with the commandments, one of which was honor your father and mother. 
you know, that it would go long with you, you'd live a long life on the earth, and so on. Jesus was a faithful Jew who honored his father and mother. I think he was simply taking a moment to address a, an error, a, a misconception in people's worldview, a common assumption in that world that is maybe as common an assumption in the 21st century that Jesus felt like he needed to call out in that moment. And the faulty assumption that Jesus was calling out was this, the most important thing going on in your world is your family. Jesus says, not true. Because the most significant web of relationship that you will ever find yourself embedded in is not the biological family out of which you came. It is the family that is comprised of the web of relationships of those who have committed themselves to doing the will of our Father in heaven. It's your family of faith. That's the most important web of relationship that you have going on. It's interesting how Jesus defines the family of faith, kind of talking about who's a part of that web of relationships, because he actually doesn't use the word faith. He doesn't talk about believing. He doesn't even talk about our beliefs. Right? Oftentimes in the church, we talk about following Jesus as though it's integrally tied to what we believe, as though, as though at the very center of being a Christian, of following Jesus, uh, has to do with your beliefs, as though becoming a Christian is something you do in your brain. And it just isn't. There's a believing component to faith. There's no question. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, that Jesus is the king of the world who is implementing God's will on earth as it is in heaven by the Holy Spirit through the church. That's what Jesus is Lord means. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he has been resurrected after the dead, and it's something that you have to believe on faith in your heart because there is no evidence, there is no hard and fast proof that the resurrection ever happened. It's something that you confess in faith. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There's a belief component to faith, but believing, having beliefs, is not enough to make you a person of faith. Jesus doesn't say, my mother and brothers and sisters are those who believe in me or who believe in God because beliefs aren't enough. Comedian Louis C.K. has this bit where he says, you know, he says, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by like none of them. (laughs) He says, "I, I, I don't like living by them. I just, I like believing them. That's the part I like. I like having beliefs. He said, they're, they're kind of my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am, having these beliefs. But if, but if my beliefs get in the way of something that I actually want to do, well, it's like, screw it, I'm doing that instead. <laughs> there are a lot of people, I think, in the church who live that way, who think that following Jesus is about having beliefs. It's about believing that Jesus came from God and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life and taught us how to live in the kingdom of God and then died for our sins and was raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven and transformed and spend eternity with God. And we have all of these beliefs, but we don't let those beliefs get in the way of how we live. Right? We have all these beliefs and we live by like none of them. Jesus says it's not, this isn't about what you believe At its core, it's not about the beliefs that you have, though there are essential beliefs to Christianity. Jesus says, the family of faith is defined by those who do the will of my Father in heaven. It's not what you believe in your head, it's what you do with your life, which 
makes me want to say on the other side that you cannot do enough to save yourself. That's also not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that if you attend church enough and go to life group and serve the poor and an anchor cause and uh, you know, you're a good church member and a good citizen and a good spouse and a good parent and a good child and a good sibling and a good, and a good employee and whatever, if you're just a generally you know, uh, good enough as a person that when you stand before God one day, he'll look at you and say, good enough, welcome into eternity. That's not what Jesus is saying. Salvation is not something that we do for ourselves. It's something that God does for us. It's not something we earn like a paycheck. It is an unexpected windfall like a lottery ticket. It is something that God gives us by grace for free when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot Be good enough to save yourself. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is the person who genuinely follows Jesus is going to have that manifest itself in the way they live their life. They will do the will of their Father in heaven. That faith issues itself in a certain kind of lifestyle, which is what we've been studying this week, a lifestyle that's not ruled by the rules, dotting the I's and crossing the T's of the black and white letter of the law, you know, in strict legalistic obedience and conformity. No, that's not the heart. It's the person who does the will of my Father in heaven is the person whose life is governed by mercy, who's motivated by love. A person who's doing the will of God is not a person whose words are reflected attitude of heart that is toxic and destructive with slander and gossip and bitterness and so on. It's a person whose heart is filled with the Holy Spirit and so whose words are filled with love and joy, and peace, and patience, and so on. The person who's doing the will of a father in heaven is not a person who is cynical and skeptical and always demanding that God prove that he's there and that he's real and that he loves you over and over and over again. No, it's the person who's willing to embrace the love of God as represented by Jesus Christ, just in faith. What Jesus is saying is, The most important network of relationships that you have in your life is the network of relationships with people whose hearts are so genuinely devoted to following Jesus that with their lives, they're committed to doing the will of the Father in heaven. That community of people, Jesus says, that's like a family. That's family to you. You need those people like you need your family. I love that metaphor of the church as family. I've been enchanted by it. I've been stewing on it for months already. The idea of church as family. Because I think we have all sorts of other ways of thinking about church that are actually destructive to our experience of community and of faith. And I feel like if we could wrap our minds around what it would be like to consider this community to be family, to behave with each other as though we were family, I think it would give us a way forward that would actually subvert and undermine many of the destructive ways that we, that we think about church. I'll give you just one example. We can't, don't have time to flush out all the different examples, but I think some of us, maybe many of us even, in our modern Western culture driven by economics, we like to think about the church as a business. 
I don't know that anybody would say that out loud, but it's, it's entirely how we behave, that the church is actually a business. It's a purveyor of spiritual goods and services to interested consumers to meet their needs as they are defined by the consumer themselves. The consumer defines the needs, and the church then provides the goods and services to meet the needs. That's that's how we think about church. And you can tell because when you drive off the parking lot on a Sunday morning, one of the first conversations that we have is, did you get anything out of the service this morning? It's the language of consumerism. It's the language of consumption. Did you get anything? It's the same question that you ask when you get back to the car and you're pulling out of the mall parking lot. Did you get anything? Yes, I got this pair of jeans and a sweater. They were both on sale. Did you get anything from the service this morning? Or, you know, we'll have conversations like, do you really buy what the preacher was saying about, you know, this sort of thing? Do you really buy what they were talking about at Life Group, uh, you know, on this particular topic or whatever? Do you buy it? We talk about buying ideas. I don't buy it, right? It's the language of consumption. We, we ask ourselves the question, what does this church have for my kids? You know, what programs, what, what, what services are available for, for my children? It's the language of consumption, Right? We live with this consumer mentality, but if we were to actually change our metaphor from church's business to church's family, it exposes how nonsensical those kinds of questions are. Right? You don't pull off the parking lot at a family reunion and ask you know, your family, so did you get anything out of the family reunion today? No, I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't go to the family reunion to get anything out of it. I went to the family reunion not to get something, but to be something, to be a family. Went to the family reunion to honor my father and mother and to love my siblings and to build into those relationships because these are the people who journeyed together with me all the way through life no matter what. I didn't go to get something. Right? You don't drive away from a family reunion and say, you know, were you buying into what your brother was saying? I mean, you may have the conversation about, well, I disagree or whatever, but it's not a consumeristic mentality where, like, if I don't buy it, I'm out of here. No, I'm not out of here. That's still my brother. We just disagree on this issue. It doesn't change our relationship. It just, we just don't see eye to eye on this issue, right? You, you don't go to a family reunion and ask, okay, what's here for my kids? <laughs> you know, in my family, my mom had boys. There were three of us. But us boys, we've been pretty good at churning out girls because uh, in the nine grandkids on that side of the family, uh, seven of them are girls. So like two guy cousins. One is nine and the other is three and there's six girls in between. I can tell you, for my nine-year-old nephew, there is not a lot for him at the family reunion. <laughs> There's just, he just doesn't get to play the way he would automatically choose to play on his own terms if he got to pick. But, but my brother and his wife don't drive off the parking lot and say, you know, there's, there's not a lot you know, at this family for our kids. We should maybe think about going somewhere else. See, that's the thing, right? If you, if you have a consumeristic mindset, then the, the question is always an open question about brand loyalty, right? You're constantly shopping around. I'll stay loyal to this brand so long as they continue to make the products that I want to consume. But as soon as they don't, I'm, I'm out of here, right? I, I, I've been reading about The Gap lately, about Abercrombie and Fitch, about J. Crew, and all these like mid-level fashion companies that are all dying. They're all dying, 
the, the high fashion stuff, the expensive stuff's doing well. The fast fashion, H&M and all that stuff, they're doing well. But the Gap and J. Crew, they all got into this model of business back in the 90s and they've never deviated from it. Now everybody's saying, I just don't want what they're selling anymore. And these brands, which are iconic in my young adulthood, are all gonna be dead in the next five years unless they experience a radical transformation because they're not producing what people wanna buy. And so people have moved on. That's what we do. As consumers, we develop a conditional commitment to the brands that we like, provided they continue to meet our needs. And when they don't, we move on. And we do it in the church. Right? We have this thing, we call it church shopping. We go from spiritual storefront to spiritual storefront, examining the merchandise, comparing the prices, checking the feel of the store, trying to figure out where we're going to get the biggest bang for a spiritual buck. You start to think about church as family and it makes nonsense of that whole mentality. We don't have conditional commitment to our family based on their usefulness to us, right? My nephew, my nine-year-old nephew, his parents aren't saying, you know, we should, we should go find another family that has more boys, uh, our boy's age. So I think that would just be better for him. Right? Nobody's saying to them, hey, you should join our family. We got a lot of male cousins between 7 and 11. He'd fit right in. Nobody says to you, hey, you know, your dad's nice. You should check out my dad. I think you'd really like my dad. I think my dad would be better for you than your dad. Why don't you come over to our family? You know, be a part of what we're doing. You know, this is my family. I'm not shopping around for a new family because these are the people that I'm connected to and journeying with. These are the ones who are committed to me and I'm committed to them. We're going to do this journey together. That's what family is. And I know, I mean, there's obviously, there are times to change churches. Nearly everybody in the room has done it, right? Just like in some circumstances, you change families. I I have a brother named James who was not born into our family. Uh, But in time, wisdom prevailed, and it was no longer healthy for him to stay connected to the family relationships where he was raised, and Uh, in time he just kind of grafted into our family and now I have a brother James that I never had before. Like I get it. I get there are times when things need to change but it's not a consumer mindset is my point because it's family. That's what Jesus says that we're supposed to be for each other and if we can embrace that idea of being family with each other well that just fundamentally transforms how we relate to each other. It fundamentally transforms our sense of inclusivity and welcome, hospitality in the community. Right? Like, think about how diverse the families are that you know. At, like, the level of identity, families are diverse. There's different ages and stages of life. There are different socioeconomic realities. There are different genders, different personalities. There are uh, different education levels, levels of sophistication. There are different sexual orientations. There are different, in some cases, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Like just our families are diverse units. Not everybody sitting around the table is the same. Right? Think about the differences in the ways that we live. We parent differently. We manage our money differently. We um, do marriage differently. We organize our lives differently, so differently that we look at each other and say, I would never do it the way you do it. Right? Think about the, the life circumstances and the diversity that's there. Some are married, some are single, some are divorced, some are remarried. Some battle with mental health, some battle with addiction. 
Some have cheated, some have been cheated on. Some have been behind bars, some have been on the streets. Some live with disability. There's just an incredible diversity of of experience and personality and identity and and all sorts of just sitting around the table. And they're not, it's not like they're unwelcome around the table. They're welcome around the table for no other reason than they're just family. And I think that's what Jesus calls the church to be. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul picks up on the metaphor and he says, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says within the family of faith, within the church, all of the ways in which we categorize and label each other, all the ways that we divide from each other in our culture, excuse me, they're all fundamentally irrelevant. There's no religious, different religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. There's no difference in socioeconomic status. Those differences are there. They're just irrelevant in the community. Within the community of faith, there's only one designation that matters, and that's child of God. And you're all it. Because you all profess the faith in Jesus Christ, and you have clothed yourself with his character, seeking to do the will of your Father in heaven. You have been joined together in a family. In all your diversity, you have been joined together in a family by your common bond to Jesus Christ, your common to, submission to our Father in heaven. Absolutely, fundamentally inclusive at the core. Everyone has a seat around the table just because your family Everyone's welcome, everyone's included, everyone's equal, and here we stand as family. It doesn't just change the level of inclusivity, it changes the way that we love each other. First Timothy 5, Paul uses this metaphor again. He says, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul says the pattern for how you relate to each other in the community of faith is to be, it's to be patterned after your family relationships. You're to treat people who are older than you, like a generation above you, you're supposed to treat them like your parents, like you would treat your grandparents. The people who are of your generation or below, you treat them like your siblings. That's the model. Now, some of us should probably not treat people like we treat our siblings. (laughs) Some of us should learn to treat our siblings better, our parents better. But Paul says, in an idealized sense, the way families are supposed to be when they're functional rather than dysfunctional, we treat each other the way we would treat our own flesh and blood family. And that doesn't mean that everything's smooth and perfect and there's never any problems or conflict. No, no, no. Paul, Paul says this whole verse is rooted in conflict, right? Paul says don't rebuke harshly an older man. The, the context of the verse is that somebody needs to be rebuked. That there's conflict going on. But Paul says, but you don't freak out on the person. You, you look at them and you say, how would I talk to my dad right now? And you come alongside and you put your arm around and you gently and firmly urge and plead with them to come alongside. And Paul says, you do the same with older women. You, you think, how would I talk to my mother right now? How would I talk to my sister right now? How would I talk to my brother right now? And that becomes the governing dynamic in all circumstances, including conflict for how we relate to each other. And what does that mean? It means speaking the truth, but doing it in love. It means endless amounts of forgiveness. 
It means doing your best to stand in the other person's shoes. It means that no conflict is going to destroy the relationship, that we are family first and foremost, and nothing's ever going to change that. Because we're the community of people who have been knit together by God to journey together as brothers and sisters in submission to our Father to do his will out of a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means for those who do the will of the Father to be family with each other. And I think it has the power to transform all of our, our entire community in the way that we are with each other. I want to invite the band back to the stage as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, literally to sit at the table, the Lord's table, together with each other, inclusively and in love, being family around the table and celebrating the fact that it is Jesus Christ who has united us together in relationship with our Heavenly Father as family. And it makes all the difference. Um, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he talks about how God joined Jews and Gentiles together into a single family. And the fact that Jews and Gentiles could live together as a single family of faith, Paul says, that's meant to signal to the powers that be, to the evil powers you know, that swirl around in the air, whatever, that is a signal to everything that is aligned against Christ that God has won. When God can take people as diverse as us, people who in our natural realms would be as antithetical towards each other as us and bring us together and join us into family, Paul says that is the sign, that is the sign that love wins in the end because of Jesus Christ. And so he prays this. For this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts as a community through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in the love of Christ, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people, with the whole family, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know in your experience with each other this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with love to the measure of the fullness of God. Friends, the reason we celebrate communion is because it is the power of God flowing through the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ that fills us and empowers us by his spirit to become the kind of community that is rooted and established in his love and is able to be filled to the full measure of Christ with the love of Christ that then spills over into each other's lives in the way that we are family together. So come. Take your place at the table. Join your family. Let's eat together. And as we do, celebrate the love of Jesus as demonstrated by the cross that has made us family with each other.